Welcome to the Smarter Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Callen. My intent with this podcast is to provide information to coaches of all levels, from youth to elite athletes, but also to athletes, especially those uh, athletes who focus on endurance sports. My intent is to interview coach educators, coaches, sports scientists, and others that can help you become a better coach or a better athlete. I'd like to present information that's science-based whenever possible, but use best practices when necessary. My goal is to bring on guests who are experts in their fields that will reinforce what you already know, will challenge what you know or think you know, and will contradict what you know or think you know. There's a great quote from John Wooden that goes, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts. Could should share a little bit about myself and my eclectic background. Currently, I'm an instructor teaching courses in exercise physiology, nutrition, uh, program design for personal trainers. I call myself a runner, although I'm currently laid up with an injury. I also coach adult distance runners and spend a couple of years doing triathlons myself. So if you're looking for a coach to help you get faster or complete a race, drop me a line. I'll put my contact at the information at the end of the pod. In the past, I've worked for the USOC as a sports scientist and at USA Cycling as a sports scientist and coaching educator. It was my experience as a coach educator that got me excited about how coaches want and need education. During my time at the USOC and USA Cycling, I found that elite coaches were very interested in learning how to coach better. I also found coaches of youth and age groupers highly interested in learning. While often coaching education is thought of in terms of what to coach, I also want to focus on the how to coach aspect. I think of it as coaching the person and not just the technical or physiological aspects. Academically, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's degree in counseling, along with a master's degree in exercise science. So I think this gives me a nice mix of both understanding the mental preparation as well as the physical preparation for athletes. If you found this podcast, I'd like to know how, and thanks for finding it. If you have suggestions about the podcast, please share them with me. You can reach me in three ways. First of all, my email address is smartercoachingllc at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is smartercoaching, and my website is smartercoachingllc.com. All right, for this first podcast, I don't have a guest, so you're stuck with me and my thoughts on coaching education, particularly coaching at the youth level. Youth coaching is an interesting mix here in the United States. When I speak of youth, I'm referring mainly to pre-high school age kids, so under the age of 13 or so. For the most part, coaches in youth sports are volunteers. At least stereotypically, youth sport coaches are parents. Oftentimes, they're the parent who volunteered to coach because if there was no coach, their kid was not going to get to play the sport. Basically, recreation departments or YMCAs are just happy to have an adult out there supervising kids and working with them and making sure that nobody's getting into trouble. These coaches mean well, uh, but I say they generally lack the training to teach or to coach properly. And by that, I mean to look at the development of the athlete as well as teaching technical skills that they'll need to know how to do in the sport. These parents or volunteer coaches often played their sport, and they likely will teach the kids as they were taught. A drawback to this system includes a lack of training in how to organize practices, how kids develop, and the best ways to instruct based on that developmental level. 
Often as adults, we're far removed from what it's like to be eight years old and learning how to hit a baseball for the first time or catch a baseball for the first time. We might assume a lot, of, a lot from the kids that we coach. I'm reminded my brother telling me about coaching a youth baseball team comprised of first-year baseball players. He was teaching them to catch pot flies, including how to shield their eyes from the sun with their glove. When he finished, he realized a lot of the kids looked lost. It took a few minutes of asking questions until one kid finally admitted that he didn't know what a pot fly was. Several other kids nodded their heads in agreement. My brother had just assumed that every kid knows what a pot fly is. Teaching technique properly makes the sport safer. Now, I think there's legitimate discussions on what technique in a sport is safer and the proper way to teach it. I'm looking at you, American football, when it comes to tackling. But certainly we need to look at what are the best practices. You know, you can look at scientists who can point out the different ways of teaching technique, motor learning. I hope to have someone on who can talk about that later on. And just how to teach practice and how to organize practices. Another critical aspect to coaching is how the coach interacts with the kids. The number of kids in sport who quit at or before the age of 13 is around 70%. So if you look at a group of 12-year-olds that are playing sport right now, about 70% of them will not be playing sport when they're 40 or when they're 14. Hopefully they'll play them by the time they're 40. Now some realize that sport, especially the more competitive aspects that once one encounters in high school, is not for them. They realize, eh, I'm just not the sporting person. I don't like the competitiveness of it. Maybe I'm not very good at it. Um, maybe they find other interests that come along, such as music and theater, dance, things like that, that are wonderful activities. Hopefully keep them physically active. They can learn lots of wonderful things that we teach in sport. Things like hard work, grit, determination, what to do when you fail, picking yourself back up. You can learn that in music as well as theater, as well as dance, and, and sport as well. However, I get concerned with those kids who, when they go off on those activities, maybe the amount of physical activity that they get during the day goes way down because some of those are not very active sports. And as we can look around at the obesity numbers here in the United States, we know that it starts at a very young age with inactivity, and we oftentimes blame that on video games. But I think we can also sometimes blame that on the fact that we just don't have avenues for kids who aren't real competitive to play sports. I was uh, once a trainer for a group called the Positive Coaching Alliance, PCA, and I encourage you to check them out at uh, positivecoaching.org, I think is their website. I will put that in the show notes, which I'll tell you how to find those at the end of the podcast. I was drawn to PCA as an organization because I like the idea that you can win and also learn lessons that many of us think sport can offer. Uh, i not in the camp of the people of everyone should get a medal and a ribbon and everyone should get a participation trophy. And I think what I liked about PCA is that they said, yeah, winning is important in sports. We keep score. We have competitiveness for that reason, but also we can learn these other lessons. And PCA calls this double go goal coaching uh, in here. The double goals are one, to win, and two, to learn these life lessons. Uh, another thing that PCA teaches is talk about filling the emotional tanks of athletes. There are strategies for filling this emotional tank, including avoiding common coaching antics like frowning, throwing a clipboard, etc. The idea behind the emotional tank is you don't want the kid leaving there feeling worse about themselves 
when they came in. And too often, I think we see coaches who do that. They think you have to coach by just berating the kids all the time because maybe that's what they see happening at the collegiate level and the professional level. Well, I think there's a vast difference between how you treat an eight or nine-year-old and a 28, 29-year-old professional who's getting paid or even a, a college kid who's getting a scholarship. Although I would say that may be closer to how we should be treating, um, we should treat them closer to how we treat the eight, nine-year-olds. So one way of helping to fill this emotional tank is this idea of the magic ratio that PCA teaches. This is based off the work of a researcher at the University of Washington named Gottman. Gottman looked at elementary school age kids and found that the kids who learned and performed the best uh, tended to get uh, a ratio of positives to uh, negatives or criticisms in a ratio of five to one. What Gottman found in general was that for every criticism or uh, negative feedback that you gave a kid, you should have five positives that go with it. Now, the first time I heard this, I thought this is kind of a crazy idea. If I've got to correct a kid for uh, missing a pass or you know dropping a fly ball or whatever it may be, then I've got to stand there and think of five great things to say about that kid to put the one criticism in there. And this is not how I interpret this at all and, um, and not how PCA interprets it. Over the course of time, if you add it up, if you were keeping tally marks, your interactions with the kids, you should have five times more positive interactions than, say, negative or giving corrective feedback on things <clears throat> with that. This actually reminds me of something I read years ago uh, in a book called, called In Search of Excellence. And the authors of this book talked about catching people doing the right thing or doing their job well. The same to me can apply to kids you coach. Praise them when they do something well. And I mean anything that they do well, praise them for it, especially early on, right? Praise them for hustling. Um, one of the things with this is that um, you, can, you can praise them when you do so you want to praise them very specifically toward what they did. You don't want to give them the good job Susie out there sort of thing. You want to tell them what they did a good job doing. Rather than saying, hey, nice nice job out there today, Susie. Point out to Susie, hey, Susie, I love the way you hustle after that ball. I love the way you were in the right position when you uh, to get that pass or to receive it. You know, be very specific with that praise so that they understand exactly what it is you're looking for it also helps to keep down just that sort of token good job out there to guy today guys when they may realize hey, what didn't he see me screw up on that play what's he talking about i had a terrible practice today uh, with that if you're very specific with it then also that praise becomes much more meaningful to them another area of concern with youth sports is using physical activity as punishment I bet we can all remember making an error and the coach making you take a lap or do push-ups or run uh, suicides, as we called them back in my day. Uh, suicides were in basketball, you would run from the in-line to the free-throw line, back to the in-line, half-court line, back, that sort of thing. My issue here is that kids become to associate physical activity with punishment. Now, I'm a, a person who coaches to adult runners, so I'm really concerned about the fact that people hate running and sometimes I'll look back on it and I, I think some of those kids hate running or some of the adults hate running because when they were a kid 
if they screwed up in gym class or screwed up in practice and made a mistake, then the coach made them run. Well, we all know that if you associate that activity with a punishment, you get less of that activity. So I encourage you, please, as a coach, find other ways to punish that child for making mistakes. Now, even harsh, I even not sure I like the word punishment, <clears throat> because does taking a lap make them better at shooting free throws? Does it make them better at whatever they did? Figure out another way. If they violate team policies, figure out another way to punish them versus doing extra conditioning or things like that. Conditioning is important, but conditioning should be part of the training process, not used as punishment, in my opinion. Along those lines, this kind of mixes another issue with uh, sports, is bullying in sports. And there have been some horrific cases lately uh, in the news about bullying. Um, I say lately, this is, uh, I'm recording this in late October of 2016. There have been just recently a Outside the Lines episode on ESPN about a kid who was bullied and they went into some other horrible stories about kids who were just bullied and and to me it went beyond bullying it went into sexual assault in some cases and with that i think there is you know bullying and hazing and there's a continuum on the here where things fall and where one thing begins another thing ends there may be some gray area at what point is it hazing at what point is it bullying look i'm not the expert i'll get somebody on here to talk about that uh, part of it um, but certainly needs to be addressed when a kid is picking on another kid and making their life uncomfortable or miserable. And I think we as coaches and adults need to step in and stop that. How we go about doing that, again, going to look at that hopefully in an upcoming episode. I did read a story recently that kind of melded these last two points of the bullying and the physical activity for punishment. I saw a story, and I'll link this in the show notes, about a youth volunteer football coach who made a kid who was accused of bullying run laps as punishment. Now, my first thought when I saw the headline was, okay, well, at least he addressed the bullying part of this, right? Would I have preferred he have some sort of other punishment laps? Sure. But he at least addressed the bullying, hopefully, to get stopped. Then as I read the story, the league that he worked for suspended him for uh, issuing that punishment. And, I was, and as I read through the story uh, in the Washington Post, it talked about the, the league said they didn't think that was an appropriate way to punish it, but at the same time, the league had no policy or no training on how do you, you know, how do you deal with bullying if you're the coach. I think that the league was wrong to uh, suspend this coach. I think they could have taken the coach that here's some proper training. Hey, maybe run laps the next time is not the best way of doing this. And, but let's properly train our coaches and let's use this as a great moment to educate all our coaches and our parents about bullying and, uh, and what the consequences are. Uh, with that, I did remember in the story, there is a bullying policy that I'm sure everybody signed off on and nobody read, right? Typical policies. So I think this and other situations show just what we need in this country is a better way to train coaches and to develop a U.S. system of training coaches as professionals. Now, this term professional sometimes really freaks people out. And I'll go out on the limb right now and say, yes, I would like to see youth sport coaches be professionals. I would like to see them uh, have training, have certifications, 
have education on how to not only teach the technical aspects of the sport, but how to be good coaches. Coaches are teachers. If you read John Wooden, and if you want to learn a lot about coaching and working with people, I think John Wooden is a great place to start. And John Wooden was originally a teacher. He was a high school English teacher in Indiana. And he was also a great athlete himself. And uh, Coach Wooden always thought of himself as a teacher. And, and I think there's a lot of to be said for how do you learn to teach things as, along with you know teaching those skills. But how do you teach? Not just I was a great athlete and so I can go out and teach you how to kick a soccer ball and score goals. How do I break that down so I teach another person how to do that? And I would like to have us professionalize youth coaching in that way. I would like to have it so that a person can grow up and they say, I want to be a coach. I want to coach, you know, 10, 11 year olds because I love those kids. They're great age. You know, they, they're aware of themselves enough that they know how to follow instructions and I can teach them those things. And I would like to, you know, have someone be able to make a career where in, you know, different seasons they coach different sports. So they may coach, you know, soccer, basketball, and lacrosse, you know, in different seasons, depending on where you live. Um, and they can make a living out of doing that. And we're close to that now in that we have club sports who kind of take along this task. I would say they're professionals and then they're getting paid, but I'm not so sure that all of them act professionally and I think that there's it's really the wild wild west right now there's a very much buyer beware sort of attitude with club coaches I think there's some real downsides with clubs I know if you're a club sport coach listening to this you're probably gonna get really mad at me here but I say take a look at your fellow clubs club coaches and what they're doing and um, I think there's some great ones out there but I also think there's some folks who are while they are coaching for the right reasons they're also looking at it going, this is how I'm making my living. I've got to do some things that maybe aren't that great or that don't fit into what I think are that great. <clears throat> um, some sports have a really strong club aspect, right? Uh, I think of swimming and soccer as two of those, and particularly swimming. Having friends here, in, uh, I live in Colorado, having friends talk about the difference between the swim team at the high school and the swim team at the club level, and they talk about the club coaching is so much better and swimming has a great coaching program. The American uh, Swim Coaches Association is very good, do a lot of training uh, with that. And there's a conflict sometimes between the high school and the club. We see that in soccer as well. And there can be a friction where the club coaches in some sports basically tell their athletes, don't play high school sport because you're not going to get as good a training. You're basically wasting your time. And I find that problematic. I think there's some great things about being on your high school team as well. I have a, another concern with a club sport is um, a very much a push towards early specialization amongst many of the club coaches. The idea, and parents actually are at fault for this too. I'm going to hold the parents actually more accountable than anybody else because ultimately the parent is the person making that decision for that kid and should be the adult in the room when it comes to this and looking out for the best interest of their kid. Sometimes I think parents think the what's best for their kid in terms of sport is to, you know, pick a sport at age four and by gosh, little Timmy is going to be, you know, a baseball player, tennis player, whatever it may be. And where do people get this idea? I think it's come a few ways. I think one has been 
uh, people read stories about Tiger Woods and Andre Agassi, and I hold these two guys up as examples. Of They started their sport very young and really are known for only playing that sport. Um, Tiger Woods um, famously was on uh, you know, a popular TV show at the time you know, when he was like three or four years years old, chipping balls with a little golf club and putting and doing things like that. And, oh, he's just adorable and look at this great. And then he went on and had this, you know, tremendous career. And people think, oh, well, that's the way we have to do it. They ignore that a lot of golfers did not start age three or four and certainly did not specialize in that sport at that young of an age. Uh, same thing with Andre Agassi. Uh, started playing tennis very, very young age. And, um, you know, picked up a tennis racket, started hitting balls, and then he was a tennis player from there going, you know, all through tennis academies, everything like that, and had this tremendous career. Now, he had a lot of ups and downs along the way, too. If you read his biography, you'll see he hated tennis for a long period of time. He saw it as a job at a very young age. And let's face it, sports should be fun, and most of our kids who are playing tennis right now are not going to grow up and have the career Andre Agassi had. And... But people think that's what you've got to do. And there's a good bit of evidence. I'd say there's a lot of evidence right now that this early specialization in most sports is a bad idea. In tennis particularly, there's some research showing that kids who specialize early in tennis tend to have their best performances at relatively young ages. Now, we're talking about male tennis players here um, with those. So their peak performances are around the age of eh, like 17 or 18, whereas uh, athletes or tennis players who specialize later here have their best performances later in life in their 20s. Um, now first of all I should talk about what early specialization is and the definition I use of this is before the age of about 15. Okay, So basically about your sophomore year in high school for those in the United States at that point in time it makes sense to here's my sport I want to specialize in it because that's the best sport that I'm at, I'm, that's the sport I'm good at, and maybe that's the sport that has potential for me. And um, but I'll come back to, I'll debunk that in a second as well. Uh, but back to our tennis players, this early specialization idea. And club coaches really push this, and I think sometimes because, one, they just don't know any better, but I think sometimes there's also this aspect of, I want to keep this kid year-round because that's money in my pocket. If I'm charging this kid a, you know, a few thousand dollars every few months to do my program, that's money in my pocket. If they go off and play high school baseball, for instance, for that three or four months, I'm not getting any money out of that. Maybe they're coming and using the batting cages or something in my facility, but I'm not really getting that much money. I spoke to a friend of mine recently whose son is about to go off and play college baseball and uh, very happy for him. He's a good kid. And I asked her how much do they think they spent last year on his on his baseball and she said they estimated around eight to ten thousand dollars by the time you count in travel uh, to tournaments and uh, you know equipment and club fees and coaching fees and all this stuff and I, I kind of I didn't do this to her face and if she listens to this she'll know what I'm talking about but I look at that and go that's you know eight to ten thousand dollars they have the income to dispose on that it's their money fine uh, and he got a scholarship out of this, but I'm wondering, okay, that's eight to ten thousand dollars. Is the scholarship that he's getting worth that amount of money? And now that was just for one year. He's done that for several years. Um, <clears throat> and there's a longer story that I that I I feel 
like I, I won't tell today because I'm kind of already running a little bit long about a young about a tennis player and his dad and doing the calculations of that. Maybe I'll tell that story another time with that one. Uh, but back to the early specialization thing. <clears throat> I, I'm sorry, I'll tell you ahead of time. I sometimes get off on tangents, even though I have notes here on what I'm trying to follow uh, with that. Um, the early specialization is really a concern in some sports because it can increase the risk of injuries. And we've, we're perhaps seeing that in baseball with players who specialize in baseball, particularly pitchers who end up with this horrible um, injury of the ulnar, ulnar, ligram, ulnar, sorry, ulnar ligament, uh, which is in the elbow that leads to this surgery that a lot of people heard of, Tommy John surgery. They had to reconstruct um, that, that ligament in there or the tendon. And what happens is this from overuse, um, the joint becomes inflamed and you get damaged and you have to undergo this very surgery that takes a year to return from. Well, we're seeing that in younger and younger kids, and it seems like at least doctors are reporting they're seeing it more and more in kids who play that sport year-round. Basically, if you're pitching year-round, you're not ever giving your body and the elbow a chance to rest. Playing other sports where you may still have to throw is fine. Throwing a football is a very different action than throwing a baseball. You don't see this injury in, in quarterbacks. Okay, For one thing, they just don't throw the ball that much at any given time or with that velocity and the weight's different, the motion's different. There's biomechanical aspects of that. <clears throat> but even if the kid's a high school pitcher on the baseball team in the spring and playing fall football and is a quarterback, it's still a different enough motion that he's able to let that elbow uh, grow, mature, and recover from the stress of the baseball season from the spring and probably the summer too with this. The flip side of early specialization is really what folks, coaching educators, uh, typically point out is this idea of multilateral development. Um, I like this idea of, for one thing, it's kids playing lots of sports. And this can go back to something like sampling, where at a young age, have a kid play as many sports as they possibly can. Um, let them find out the one they really like and enjoy. <clears throat> and they want to pursue that sport, that's fine. But I would say have them play another sport at another time of the year to experiment. I think for a few things. The idea that you can figure out age four that this kid is going to be a baseball player to me is ludicrous. What did you, you know, when you were at four, what did you want to do with most of your time? When you're eight, 12, I think at least I'm in my early 50s. You know, a lot of us, my buddies, we want to be astronauts. Some of us still want to be cowboys for that matter. Well, you know, the odds on doing that are pretty long. A friend of mine wanted to be a, you know, major league baseball player. You know, he made it on the high school baseball team and he wasn't very good at that. He realized that's it. But he didn't put all his eggs in one basket. He played other sports. He was a great all-around athlete. And I think making you an all-around athlete should be the first goal of this. Make you a mover first, even. This is something West Virginia University came up with a group called, um, they developed for steel sports, is become a mover first. Get people moving. Then develop them into an athlete. And then into a player and then in this case, they came up with the idea of a position because baseball, very position specific. Get them moving, get them become an athlete. And they can take that athleticism from one sport to another. Uh, I I'm <clears throat> have read recently, if you look at um, the last, the prior two years, so the 2015 and 2016 signing classes at Ohio State University on their football team, 
something on the order of 90 plus percent of those kids that they signed to Division I football scholarships at a powerhouse program played more than one sport in high school. So if Urban Meyer at Ohio State is signing these kids to multi, you know, who played multi-sport, then that tells you right there you do not have to specialize early on in order to get that college football scholarship. Um, I'm reminded of the story of Cal Ripken. Read an interview where he was asked when was the first year that he played baseball year-round, uh, and that was the only sport he played. And he said it was the first year that he had a minor league contract, so he was 18 or 19 years old before he ever played baseball year-round. And Cal Ripken wanted to have a pretty good career, I would say. So there are tons of stories about that. Uh, Roger Federer, the tennis player, kind of the Andre, the sort of the flip side of Andre Agassi. While Federer um, started playing tennis very young, he still played other sports like squash and soccer. And then at the age of 12, he specialized in tennis. He stopped playing those other sports and focused on tennis. Now, you know, to me, 12 may be a little bit early, but that's way better than four. Okay, uh, with this. Another one on the multi-sport side here, and this kind of goes back to football a little bit. In the 2016 NFL Draft, over 80% of the first-round picks in the NFL Draft played more than one sport in high school. And I know of a few other examples, too, here. And I know I'm cherry-picking examples here. I'll admit it, but I, I, I want to reflect that you don't have to do this. Um looking at college athletes who played multiple sports in high school and even in college in some cases. I think about John Elway, who was, you know, one of the great NFL quarterbacks. Well, in college at Stanford, he was the starting quarterback. But he was also playing minor league baseball for the Yankees at the time and actually used that as leverage to get out of being drafted by the Colts because he didn't want to go play for the Colts. And he used as leverage to do that. He was good enough in both those sports to do them at a very high level. Uh, Deion Sanders played three sports in college. He ran track, played baseball, and football. And then went on in the major leagues and was an NFL player and played major league baseball at the same time. I am a I'm grew up in, near Atlanta. I was a Falcons fan for a long, long time, big Braves fan. And Deion played for both. And he was able to, even in one day, play in a football game and a baseball game in the same day. Charlie Ward is another example of a guy who played football and basketball in college. He won the Heisman Trophy in football, and then he went on and actually played in the NBA. Uh, Jameis Winston, more recently, uh, won the Heisman Trophy in football and was playing college baseball as well and was a you know well-thought-of baseball player with that. I, I find it interesting that the three of them all went to Florida State University, so there must be something in the culture there that is, is indicative of that. And then, you know, I look at other folks like Bo Jackson, who one of the greatest high school athletes ever, one of the greatest college uh, football players ever. He won the Heisman Trophy. He went on to play in the NFL, but he also played baseball. And he was an all-star in baseball and would play the baseball season and then come in about halfway through the football season and play football. And, you know, doing both incredibly well. And uh, he's a really, really amazing athlete with that. So if someone says to your seven-year-old or says to you about your seven-year-old that he or she needs to play one sport year-round, think about these athletes who did not do that and who went on to the highest level. So I'd like to wrap up now, and I'd like to see our with our team, our volunteer coaches. I want to see them better trained. I want to see a move towards more professional coaching in new sports. 
I think that coaches need to be technically proficient, but also understand where they fit into developing that kid as a mover and then as an athlete, then as a player. I want to see a deep emphasis on early specialization and uh, playing sports single, uh, single sports year-round. I'm all for year-round play, but vary the sports. And with that, I think that's a good uh, time to wrap up. <clears throat> Sorry if I rambled and kind of went off a little bit. I apologize. This is the first of the podcast. I'm still learning how to go here. So what I'd like to do is, again, reiterate my contact information. If you want to drop me an email, shoot me a tweet, uh, leave a comment on my face or on my uh, website, that'd be great. Haven't gotten a Facebook page developed yet. Um, I'd like to, you know, send suggestions to me at, via email at smartercoachingllc at gmail.com visit my website smartercoachingllc.com and also follow me on twitter at smartercoaching and with that I'd like to thank you for your uh, listening for getting through this and uh, hopefully you're having a great day and good luck with your coaching <music>